As I've said many times before, who Christ is defines who we are. Without Christ's work at creation, our existence as people would not be possible. Without Christ's work at the cross, our existence as a redeemed people would not be a reality. And without Christ's work at consummation, our existence as a sanctified people would never come to fruition. Who Christ is determines who we are. Therefore, in remembering Christ's coming, his incarnation, as we remembered throughout the month of December, we rejoice because it is by the plan of God that genuine salvation is possible. How fitting it is then that as we come off this month of December and as we reflected on the significance of that event, we recounted the announcement of Christ's coming the arrival of Christ coming into the physical world and the acknowledgement of Christ at his presentation at the temple just last week. And now we return to 1 Timothy. And it's fitting that we commence with an evaluation of Christ, that after enjoying Christ present on earth, we now enjoy Christ present in the church. Returning to 1 Timothy we arrive at a point when Paul proudly declares who Christ is and what that means for the church in 1 Timothy 3. We are at a transition point in our text, a transition point in which Paul goes from a discussion about church structure to then discussing church relationships. In that interlude, he reminds readers about who the church is and the purpose of the church as a result. Whenever there is a thoughtful proclamation of Christ and a pause in the text that declares who Christ is, as we find in verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, I always find it very beneficial to pause and just look specifically at who he is. So as a result, my plan in the upcoming weeks is to first look at verses 14 through 16, at least the first part of 16, and then next week actually look at the last part of 16 to see who Christ is. But we have to remember that these verses are dependent upon one another, that they cannot be separated, and we'll see a little bit of that today. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Next week, as we look at verse 16, the message I've titled for next week is the confessional church, God's proclamation for the body of Christ. But today, I've titled today's message, the conventional church, God's purposes for the body of Christ. And so please stand for the reading of God's word. We will keep this very short, just reading beginning in chapter 3, verse 14, and going through chapter 4, verse 5. I hope to come to see you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, 
who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. You may be seated. Upon reading these verses, John Calvin writes of the church that it's not described in an ordinary way. He says, how could we describe the church in a more honorable way? Nothing is more sacred and nothing is more holy than the truth that embraces both God's glory and man's salvation. Bound in our text is a declaration of both who the church is, but also who the people are. And they meet and come together in who Christ is. This is a glorious text because it combines both God's glory, which is a purpose of the church, and man's sanctification or man's salvation. And we see that in the church. This church described here is a combination of people saved by God's grace who glorify God then by living out that grace. The church is one of three institutions that the Lord has gifted to people at his creation to create order, to glorify himself, and to bring about the salvation of people. God intended three institutions to guide and direct, the family, the government, and the church. Like many good gifts of the Lord, though, our sin has a tendency to distort each of these institutions. Character traits, heart issues, really, like pride and self-centeredness as examples, transform those institutions. And they transform them, and we actually see that very clearly in the government, as you look out at what the government is. What it does is it transforms those institutions that were meant to glorify God into something that now glorifies man. They become man-centered rather than God-centered. Our text this morning, 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, it refocuses the church once again defining its purpose, its position, and its proclamation. Its position is an object of God's affection and his means for fulfilling his mission. It is his household, after all, as it says. Its purpose is to guard the truth and be a guide to truth. And its proclamation is that truth and godliness is Christ. The ability of the church to live out that position, to live out that purpose, and to live out that proclamation is dependent upon its relationship with the truth. If the church's relationship with the truth is strained, then the church's relationship with the God of truth is strained. Concerned about this, Philip Graham Riken says, the truth is not as true as it used to be. Sometimes it may even be falsehood. Truth is truth. So how could Riken say that the truth is not as true as it used to be? That sometimes it might be false? Because people are sinful. There is an inclination then to manipulate the truth and make oneself appear better. For some, there's an inclination to distort the truth, to use it to one's own needs. For others, they will define truth by tradition rather than tradition by the truth. To explain that point further, Riken goes on and he he offers an example, and he points to a scandal in the White House. I don't know which one. There have been many over the years. (laughs) 
But he points to one in particular, and he says, with all these lawyers present, one of the reporters asked the lawyer, you know, wanted to know, is the client telling the truth? In fact, the reporter demanded it. He even said, tell us what the truth is. And the lawyer answered, the truth is what is in that deposition. Unless we make a deal with the prosecutor and say something else. <laughs> in other words, the truth is something that may or may not actually be true. It can be manipulated for personal gain or personal consequences. But the reality is truth cannot be altered. Because truth is defined by God's word and God's son, it is unalterable. And it cannot be subject to manipulation. It is that truth that is in view of our text here this morning. And that truth that then influences what the church does and who the church is. The Apostle Paul says that he has written this letter so that the people may know how to conduct themselves in the household of God. Verse 15. Thus far, everything that Paul has written in chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapters 3, they act as a guide to how the church is to conduct itself in truth. And the reason that he has given explicit instructions is because the church then is to be a pillar and a buttress of truth. The instructions given within the book of 1 Timothy are to guide the church in fulfilling its function then as a pillar and buttress of truth. While explaining the function of the church, Paul reveals three aspects of the church character, three aspects that are defined by the truth, and I want us to see those here in our text this morning. I want you to note first that because of the truth, the church is connectional. The church is connectional. Paul writes, beginning in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. By his words, Paul clearly intends to visit with them face to face. In fact, it appears that being together physically is really preferable to writing this letter. But he says in the case that there's a delay, he's writing to them. In these verses, there's that sense of urgency, a sense of desire to be together. Clearly, what they're doing is using their technology of the day, their quill and their parchment, to maintain contact with one another. But there's no substitute for being together. I think frequently, and maybe I've shared this example before, of churches in Venezuela, I remember working, and we did partner with multiple churches in Venezuela, and I was always amazed on every trip at how interconnected those churches were. They all had the same confession of who Christ was, actually part of the same denomination or association. And yet, despite being 30, 50, 100 kilometers apart, the churches were connected to one another. So that when a, something happened in this church over here, they knew about it. And when there was an event in a church over here, the others came and participated. I've never seen connection like those churches are. To the point of being able to encourage one another, confront one another, and build each other up. The connectional nature of the church is so important that God issues a command through the author of Hebrews to say, do not neglect meeting together. For what purposes, though? 
in that same passage in Hebrews chapter 10, in the verse prior, Paul, if you believe Paul wrote that, says that the purpose of getting together is to stir up one another to good works. Ephesians 4 says it is to equip the saints. Galatians 6 suggests that the purpose of getting together is to carry one another's burdens. We see that connectional nature of the church evident in Paul's letters. We often note how Paul ends his letters with greetings from those that he are with to those he's writing to, and he does so by name. We saw this at the end of Colossians. You can see it at the end of other, other books as well. Those personal greetings show how interconnected the people were, that they knew one another, ultimately because they were bound together by who they were in Christ. But Paul's not the only one that points to this connectional nature. We see this in the letters of John, as he talks about hospitality in the church and hosting fellow believers in people's own homes. The church has lived out in community, and part of living out, that bo- living out truth is living it out in the body of Christ. If the Lord intended us to live alone, I would have to think that he would have avoided all the one another commands and all the one another phrases in scripture. There'd be no need to write details about how to live within the body of Christ if the church wasn't meant to be connectional. But notice in our passage how truth defines those relationships. They are connectional, but we see here the role of being a pillar and a buttress of truth makes the church connectional. Remember, why does Paul write? Specifically, why does he write First Timothy? He's left Timothy in Ephesus because the church is in a disaster. Its leadership is teaching falsehood. The people are succumbing to that falsehood. And so several times he confronts that falsehood. We see it in each chapter, and in next week, when, or in two weeks, when we go to chapter four, we'll see it again. So Paul is writing to proclaim truth and at the same time to correct those who aren't teaching it or living it out. That truth is connect correctional. And because the truth is correctional, the church is connectional. Meaning that because truth corrects it, one another, we use truth in our relationships with one another. We become connectional in that way. Proverbs 27, 17, as everybody knows, tells us iron sharpens iron. Galatians 6 goes on to tell believers to confront sin and shortcomings in one another. And James 5 says to confess our sins to one another. The connectional nature is part of God's design for sanctification. He uses others to correct us and uses us to correct others. It goes both ways. When we reject this connectional nature of the church, we risk rejecting the connectional, the correctional nature of the church as well. Thus, we risk really God's design for personal growth and godliness. In the 1990s, Martin Frankel set up a financial firm to manage the investments of various people in various companies. Frankel is probably not as well known as many other people But his story reads like those that you're probably familiar with, like that of Enron in early 2000s, 2001 to be exact, or more recently that of Bernie Madoff. 
Martin Frankel basically set up a Ponzi scheme, using the money of new clients to pay off his old clients, and then making sure that he siphoned off plenty of that for him to live a lavish lifestyle himself. At one point, he even paid for the divorce of his girlfriend, who was the wife of his former boss. So he'd been fired from his previous job, went to start a firm, took his boss's wife with him as his secretary, and paid for her divorce from the very man who fired him. But Frankel specifically targeted religious organizations for his investments. He set up a foundation that he called the St. Francis of Assisi Foundation in order to appeal to those religious organizations. Today, there might be an organization called that that I would suspect is not related to this at all, just to be clear. Despite what no, was knowing what was going on at that time, those companies that had actually seen what was taking place refused to both confront Frankel or turn him in. And then you have others, companies and individuals, including some of those religious organizations who saw these warning signs, who saw discrepancies, but they chose to ignore them. So when Frankel finally fell and, and police caught up with him, there were all these warning signs, but people refused to confront. The consequences were more than financial. It ruined lives, it ruined reputations. See, but by designing the church as connectional, the Lord has created safeguards so that what happened to Frankel really shouldn't happen to us spiritually. He uses the connectional nature of the church to help us avoid sinfulness and cause us to pursue godliness. When you think about all those churches that have failed, what you find out is that the reason they failed is not just the refusal to confront, but then people isolated themselves so that they didn't have to be confronted and nobody knew what was going on. And so when we deny the connectional nature of the church, we deny God's provision for our growth and sanctification. And so because of God's truth, the church is connectional. I want you to note second that because of truth, the church is conventional. The church is conventional. The church is revolutionary only in the sense that it will stand for truth when the culture abandons truth. By and large, the church is just a conventional organization that's really not meant to be a revolutionary force. It does become revolutionary only because when we see things like Romans 1 taking place, in which people tend to reject God, and so the Lord just abandons the people to themselves, the church continues to stand firm. So while the culture is going in its own way, the church is standing firm in the truth. And by doing so, it appears to be very revolutionary, only because it's going against the trends of the culture. But God's design and purpose for the church is not for the church to intentionally be revolutionary. Instead, the call for the church is merely to be conventional. It is to be classical. It's supposed to follow the truth we see in our text, the truth that was established a long time ago. The church does this by being a pillar and a buttress of truth. Look at what it says in verse 15, beginning in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God 
which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. They're not inventing anything here. They're not doing anything radical. They're just living out God's will. Notice that in this particular text, Paul is not saying that the church is supported by the foundation or pillar of truth. Instead, what the text is saying is that the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. They are supported by truth in the sense that it is supported by Christ. But ultimately, in a world of falsehood, the church is to be a pillar and a foundation of truth that does not follow in that falsehood. That word buttress there in the ESV means foundation. For a house, a buttress is, or foundation provides stability. It's unshakable or immovable, supporting the entire structure that is up above. The pillar may provide a level of support to those higher elements, like the roof, but it also carries another purpose because it raises up the structure, lifting it to greater heights so that it can be seen from all around. The church is a foundation of truth for the world, providing stability, the very stability that the world needs. As it diverts from God's truth, the world becomes unstable and starts falling into disorder. And the more it falls away from God, the more disorder reigns. But as a foundation, the church offers support to the world, keeping it stable, not by giving it a new psychology, not by giving it a new methodology, not by giving it a new theology, but by laying forth the same truth that has grounded it since creation. As a pillar, the church raises God's truth high for people to see. John Stott says, The purpose of pillars is not only to hold the roof firm, but to thrust it high so that it can be clearly seen from even a distance, just so the church holds the truth aloft, so that it is seen and admired by the world. Indeed, as pillars <coughs> lift a building high, while remaining themselves unseen, so the church's function is not to advertise itself, but to advertise and display the truth. Though the culture may change, the church is an immovable testimony to truth. It is very conventional. The church does not get to determine what truth is. It only gets to proclaim it. Truth has already been established by God, established long ago. So we're not presenting anything new. There's no revolutionary mentality here because there's nothing new under the sun. The text reminds us that this is a household of God. That's what it says in verse 15 there. And again, Paul says he's written so that people know how to conduct themselves in the household of God. It's a reminder that the church is not theirs, but it belongs to God. Therefore, he orders it according to his plan. That's what we saw in chapters 1 through 3. That order that God has established in these previous chapters of the letter to Timothy, it enables then the church to be that pillar and that buttress of truth. That means that when people fail to operate by the Lord's instructions, they limit their ability to be a testimony of truth, to be a pillar or buttress of truth say that's true both individually and corporately. But because the church is a household of God, though, he gets to define what truth is. 
And by engaging in that truth, the church then can be that pillar and buttress. The Lord doesn't keep truth a secret. He's freely revealed it in a lot of various ways. The psalmist declares in Psalm 33, 4, For the word of the Lord is upright. That is, his word is true, as some translations say. So for the word of the Lord is true, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Truth is then declared or revealed by his word. But we also have it by God's Son. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Again, nothing revolutionary here. It's all very conventional, all very ordinary, and God has revealed it. It's not hidden. I would say that by being ordinary, that may cause a revolution, though. Remember that this letter was given to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus. And do you know what there is, what overshadows the church in Ephesus? The Temple of Diana, or the Temple of Artemis, whatever name you want to use, they refer to the same place. In Acts chapter 19, Paul caused a riot, not intentionally, but by simply proclaiming the conventional truth. He suggested that Artemis was not a real god, and it caused a stir. And so in Acts 19, we're told of a man by the name of Demetrius. And it says, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, the craftsmen, with the workmen and similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So you have these craftsmen making their silver trinkets, and that's how they've derived their wealth and their way of living. And Paul comes in and says, these aren't real gods. He's preaching the truth. There is one true God. Verse 27 of Acts 19 goes on. It says, there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess, goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And then it goes on, and the people rise up. The church is the household of the living God, as Paul calls it in verse 15. And it stands in the shadow of this magnificent temple, but this temple is built to a dead, non-existent God. What he's preaching is a living God. That temple has 127 columns supporting the structure. It has a strong foundation, but ultimately a spiritual foundation is frail because it's not built on the truth. And despite those 127 columns, by being very ordinary in comparison to this magnificent church, the church of Ephesus stands as a pillar of truth a very contradiction of what that temple represented. And so because truth is because of the truth, the church is conventional. It's just following the way of the Lord. And I want you to know, third, that because of the truth, the church is also confessional. The church is confessional. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked Peter, Who do people say that I am? And Peter says, Elijah. Jeremiah, John the Baptist. And then Jesus asks, 
Who do you say that I am? That's quite a question because consider the risk of answering that question wrong. It would be misidentifying the Messiah. But what does Peter say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then how does Jesus respond to that? Jesus answered to them, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, but on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is on that very confession of Peter, the confession that Jesus is the Son of God, that the church is founded. The church is confessional, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. But our text in 1 Timothy, it says, Great indeed we confess. As in, what that really means is confessedly, or without controversy. It's the idea, it's to say that we confess this to be true. Without a doubt, we know this to be true. And what, it is, what is it that we confess? Verse 16 tells us, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of our godliness. We confess the mystery of our godliness, which is what? It goes on, he, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Notice what it is to be confessed. What is actually confessed is a mystery of godliness, which happens to be Christ. Paul writes in a time of great philosophers, those who would debate anything and everything, trying to examine the meaning of life. One of those things that they especially examined is what it meant to be moral, what it meant to be godly. Plato's Republic examines what it, justice means as an example. But what our text reveals is that godliness, the very things they debated, is actually found in Christ. Paul uses the word mystery. He uses it frequently. If you look at Ephesians chapter 3, we see that he actually uses it multiple times just in the first few verses. Ephesians chapter 3, he writes beginning in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, verse 6, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Whenever Paul uses the word mystery, not just in our text or in Ephesians chapter 3, but elsewhere in his letters, he's always referring to something that was once hidden long ago, but now it's been revealed. And in his writings, we see him call the gospel a mystery. We see him referring to the inclusion of the Gentiles as a mystery or Christ as a mystery. Here, in 1 Timothy, he refers to godliness as a mystery. Matthew Henry writes in his commentary, Christianity is a mystery. A mystery that could not have been found out by reason or the light of nature. 
and which cannot be comprehended by reason, because it is above reason, though not contrary. It is a mystery not of philosophy or speculation, but a mystery of godliness designed to promote godliness. At one time it was not understood, but by Christ it is now revealed. That which the philosopher saw it is now revealed and found in Christ. The confession is made by confessing Christ with the mouth. It is the admission that with the words that he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. But it's also confessed not just with the mouth, but with, word, with lifestyle and godliness. The very word that our text uses. We see this call to godliness used multiple times in 1 Timothy. In chapter 2, verse 2, when Paul speaks of corporate prayer, he says, pray for the kings and the rulers of the world. For what purpose? That they would bring peace. Why? So that people could pursue and live in godliness. In a few weeks, when we hit chapter 4, verse 7, we'll read the words where he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. And so when we find Christ, we find what it means to be godly. This confession of Christ varies differently from those in Ephesus who are worshiping Artemis. When that riot took place in Acts chapter 19, and Paul preached that true living God, it says in verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Then you jump down to verse 34 and it says, but when they recognized that Paul was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But rather than proclaiming great as Artemis of the Ephesians, truth proclaims God, great as Christ of all people. The church is confessional, confessing Christ as Lord, as a mystery of godliness. What we confess is Jesus as Lord, Jesus as Savior, and Jesus as truth. We live in a world that tries very much to obscure that. I enjoy the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. I find C.S. Lewis's words to be quite prophetic. But if you read the very first letter of the screw tape letters, when screw tape is writing to his nephew Wormwood, who's a demon in training, he's being discipled to be a demon. The very first letter Screwtape writes to Wormwood says, I note that you say about what you say about guiding your patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend. But are you not being a bit trifle and a bit naive? It sounds as if you suppose that argument was the way to keep him out of his enemy's clutches. So he's accusing Wormwood of say, trying to use reason and argument to bring this person over to Satan. He goes on, that, that might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, the human still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing and were prepared to alter their way of life as a result of a chain of reasoning. So he's saying that there was a time when reason actually brought them into obedience with the Lord. But then it goes on. But what would the weekly press 
and other such weapons, we have largely altered that. Your man has been accustomed, ever since he was a boy, to have dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think his doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. That sounds pretty familiar. The body of Christ is a church of confession because it is a pillar and buttress of truth. It confesses truth, which is Christ and godliness. But by distorting words and ideas, the world will try to undermine that confession if we're not careful. <clears throat> we need to stick to what we confess as true. We use God's words, not man's words. I remember doing a, a book review of a book a number of years ago. By and large, the book was very solid. I enjoyed the book. But this author, who I'd read many times before, I saw a transition in her writing, and she kept referring to Jesus as her bestie, as her best friend, but she used the word bestie, and I, I just hate the word. I'll, I'll tell you that outright. It is a silly word in my eyes, but people can use whatever they want. The problem with the way she used it is she kept referring to Jesus as her bestie, but that didn't mean that he was her savior. And so I kind of raised that. I said, you know, by and large, this is a solid book, but there's a concern and the trajectory of where this will go. And, and people said, well, you're just being critical. Maybe I was. But here we are five years later, and she's abandoned the truth. We need to use God's words, not man's words. Because of truth, the church is confessional. I agree with John Calvin. There is a great majesty in this text, connecting God's glory and man's salvation. David Dixon says that this verse contains the doctrine of the excellency of the church. First, it's the house of God, wherein God dwells and he feeds his family and where he's worshipped. It is the church of the living God, or a company called out, he says, of the world by the living God, besides whom all the gods which the heathens worship are dead idols. It goes on and says that as the church is called out of the world, begotten, nourished, and preserved of God by truth, it should be the church of the living God. This truth is sustained as with a pillar. And certain with buttress or foundation by the church. Because the church preserves the truth, as it were, in its treasury, in the church only, divine truth is held forth to the world. The church is an institution meant to glorify God and bring about the salvation of people. And it does that by being a pillar and buttress of truth. The excellency of the church is seen when it is when it lives out its call to be that pillar and buttress of truth. And it does this first by being a connectional church, living in togetherness, stirring up one another to good works, and urging one another to live in godliness. By being a conventional church, not reinventing the wheel, but merely living out God's call from long ago, according to his truth. And it does this by being a confessional truth, freely and proudly confessing godliness in Christ. 
And we'll learn more about that next week as we look further into verse 16 and that confession there. Let's close in prayer. Father God, in your sovereign plan and will, in your perfect design, you have created the church. You have called it out, called it out, separated it, sanctified it apart from the world, Lord. And Father, you've done so to be a pillar and buttress of truth, to proclaim your glory, to proclaim your Son, Lord. And so, Father, as we see so many shaky foundations in this world, Lord, I pray that indeed it is truth that prevails. That, Father, you would continue raising up the church to be that pillar of truth that would highlight it even when the world is against it, Lord. Father, may we confess it to be true. May we live it out. And may we influence others with that truth, Lord. So, Father, we commit this time to you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.